The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, I think everybody's in the room, so I will begin. Uh, welcome, my name is Mike Cronin. I'm the president of the Irish Historical Society and delighted tonight that we're starting the new year and happy new year for 2021. Uh, we're still on Zoom, but who knows by the end of the year we might be in person. But uh, tonight our panel is Ireland and the Caribbean, People, Property and Profit. Uh, and this is an idea, we always have a panel discussion during the year's calendar, as many of you will know. And this was an idea that came out um, from a committee member last autumn. And it's really to try and look at the Irish experience, an island in a kind of transnational and transatlantic context in this earlier period. And by bringing together the great panel we've got is to highlight some current research, um, kind of the big debates, the historiographical debates that are going on in this area, but also into the future to spark a wider discussion. We're beginning with a very kind of Irish context here. And I think in future meetings, what we want to do is try and broaden this out, broaden these kind of uh, debates about the transatlantic world, about transnational study, about indigeneity and so on, to include kind of both an indigenous and settler debate, widen the research scope, and also widen the kind of range of both Irish experts, non-Irish experts, and to broaden this out. So look, treating this very much as a starting point to um, a wider debate. Before I introduce the panelists, obviously just to remember, remind you all that uh, if you want to ask a question, please type it into the Q&A box and I'll work through as many as I can during the session. The format we've agreed in, once I've introduced people, uh, each of our speakers panelists is going to have 10 minutes just to explain their thoughts on this topic. They're going to then have a sort of interrogation of each other um, within the panel and then I'll sort of start working through the questions. So anytime you want, pop up a question. So to begin with, our first panelist is David Brown, uh, who's at Trinity College Dublin, uh, whose PhD was Speculators in Conflict, the Adventures and the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, 1642 to 1660. Um, but earlier in the year, I think David was saying yesterday, unfortunately, right in the midst of lockdown one, uh, his, first, uh, his book was released by Manchester University Press, uh, Empire and Enterprise, Money, Power and the Adventures adventures for Irish lands during the British Civil Wars. Um, so congratulations, David. Um, and obviously also he's written Ireland on Barbados, 1620 to 1660 in Fanula O'Kane and uh, Kieran O'Neill's Island Slavery and the Caribbean, uh, Manchester forthcoming 2021. The second panelist to speak is going to be Brendan Kane. Uh, who's in Daylight Hours, as you can see from his background, over in the University of Connecticut. Um, Brendan's in the Department of History, uh, has written widely on this area on the whole kind of chronological period, including Elizabeth I and Ireland, co-edited with Valerie McGowan Doyle, Cambridge University Press 2014, now in paperback. Nobility and Newcomers in Renaissance Ireland with Thomas Heron, 2013, and the Politics and Culture of Honour in Britain and Ireland, 1541 to 1641, again with Cambridge University Press. After that, we are moving to Fenora Kane from University College Dublin, uh, who started or began her kind of research career working on landscape design in 18th century Ireland, Ireland and a picturesque design, landscape painting and tourism in Ireland. Um, but more recently has moved into specifically this area 
um, with a project funded um, at UCD on islands in the Caribbean comparative perspectives, but has produced not only that forthcoming edited volume for later in the year, Slavery in the Caribbean, but also an article in Caribbean Quarterly, the Irish Jamaican plantations of Kelly's Pen, Jamaica, the rare 1749 inventory of its uh, store, stock and household goods. Our final panelist is uh, Jonathan Wright, who's at the uh, Maynooth University, um, whose publications include An Ulster Slave Owner in the Revolutionary Atlantic, The Life and Lessons of John Black, published 2019 by Four Courts. Also in 2019, Ireland's Imperial Connection, 1775 to 1947, an edited book with Daniel Santiv Roberts and John Jeffrey Wright, uh, with Palgrave, and back in 2015, Spaces of Global Knowledge Exhibition Encounter and Exchange in an Age of Empire. So some really broad topics there, big ideas. So, David, to begin. Yes. Work away, frame the debate for us. I will try. What I'm going to do is do a quick spin through the early decades of Ireland's involvement in the Caribbean, basically beginning at the 1620s, when we have what are some small agricultural ventures mixed with piracy, and within the space of 30 or 40 years, it's turned into a slave economy that's really just there for profit. Native Irish and New English speculators had tried their hands with various small schemes until the late 1620s, but what proved to be the most lasting venture was financed by a group of New English merchants in the orbit of Richard Boyle, the first Earl of Cork. In 1627, Fane Beecher Jr., the son of one of Boyle's closest associates, left Bandonbridge for St. Kitts to establish what can best be described as a Munster plantation, not the Munster plantation. This is a plantation that comes from Munster and they plant themselves somewhere else. The following year, Anthony Brisket arrived from Dungarvan to manage this colony. The colony was peopled with native Irish servants who had been forcibly transplanted from Wexford earlier in the 1620s. Boyle was already involved with Sir Nicholas Crisp, who was trading for gold on the coast of West Africa, and Crisp sourced much of his iron from Boyle's smelting operation near Bandonbridge. And in 1628, a first consignment of 60 enslaved Africans were disembarked at St. Kitts from West Africa. So we can see a small triangular trade developing within 12 months of the first settlement. The Caribbean slave economy of the English Caribbean thus began, not in London or Bristol, but in Bandon County, Cork. The bright idea of using Irish labour to clear land in the Caribbean was not unique to new English planters. In 1628, a newly established Dutch colony at Essequibo, which is in present-day Guyana, was also founded using Irish labour and English overseers. The Dutch colony was short-lived, but when it was abandoned in 1632, an enterprising Irish merchant from Drogheda called Gaspar Chillum proposed to King Philip IV of Spain that Chillum, he, would take it over and create an Irish Catholic colony to act as a bulwark against further English or Dutch incursions in the area. Chillum raised money from a consortium of Irish merchants and they hired no less than a figure than Shane O'Neill, the exiled Earl of Tyrone, to represent them in Madrid and see if they could negotiate permission to do this. The proposal ran aground. Uh, Chillum wanted to also secure the approval of James I, as well as Philip IV, to make sure that nobody would attack him. But it underlines the what Chillum had realised, the centrality of Ireland and the Irish to Atlantic projects, 
but also this idea that they could operate under a Protestant king in Catholic territory, which basically meant as far as these Irish merchants were concerned, they could go anywhere. Irish planters arrived to try their luck on English controlled islands throughout the 1630s and made their presence felt in other parts of the Caribbean as well. By the 1640s, basically nothing had really had happened. And perhaps it's because the development of the English and Irish Caribbean was so uneventful that it has this sort of perfectly happy development, although somewhat squalid, has been overlooked. The development of colonial agriculture was hard and frequently tragic, but if we can leave to one side the near eradication of the indigenous population and the enslavement of the few that were left, alongside the conversion of these islands into brutal sugar factories entirely dependent on African slave labor, it is a period of history that has not really attracted as much controversy, is remarked upon, but what happened is inarguable. What is argued over is the status and fate of some Irish laborers in the Caribbean in the 1650s. Now, the pioneering research on this topic is by Sir Hilary Beckles, who can be credited with the scrupulous separation of servant, which is an unfree laborer whose service would eventually terminate, and a slave whose unfree status was permanent and hereditary. In the system, servants were invariably white and European, slaves mostly black and African. Beckles had pointed out when he did his original research in the 1980s that little is revealed about the Irish in Barbadian primary sources during the 1650s, which is a, a cautionary note, but this has not really been paid much attention to in the torrent of recent interest in a topic that has produced a lot of commentary, but very little future archival research. And we're now getting a kind of ideological history emerging that reflects modern ways of simplification and polarization and is tied to modern campaigns and particularly the campaign for financial compensation for historical African slavery. And the rather tenuous argument here is that mere acknowledgement of Irish slavery undermines a valid case in favor of reparations, which is true if you're in the business of denying the indefensible. But it also means that this period is also not really being studied. And the facts about it are actually quite simple, and, and they are these. In 1656, a consortium of English slave traders conspired with the military authorities in Cromwell's Ireland to transport hundreds of innocent Irish civilians that they were going to round up in Munster and put them on boats and sell them in Bridgetown, Barbados. The trade in this trade was pioneered by a monster from Bristol called Robert Llewellyn, who held a contract to supply 200 Africans from the Gambia region to James Drax, a parliamentarian planter in Barbados. And Llewellyn was forced out of his patch in Gambia by royalist ships. In 1652, Llewellyn obtained a warrant from Cromwell to transport prisoners from Ireland and sent a slave ship called the Negro to Dublin, Kinsale and Cork. There's, nothing, there's no subterfuge about this. Once fully loaded, the ship sailed for the Caribbean. The business was so easy that in 1654, Llewellyn obtained an, an enlarged license to transport a thousand prisoners. And after another two years of generous bribing of Irish jailers and Cromwellian officials, Irish prisons were pretty much empty of unfortunate Irish vagrants and various petty criminals. Soldiers were a different matter and they tended to be sent to, or sold, but sent to France and Spain. The arrival in Cork of William Hawkins as sheriff and as brother-in-law of slave trader and chief Morris Thompson. Thompson incidentally sent the original consignment of slaves to St. Kitts in 1627. We saw 
a major escalation in Ireland, actually, in the slave trade. Hawkins facilitated a manhunt in the Munster countryside in 1656, kidnapped, captured, and sold hundreds of innocent people. And the fig leaves of convict labourer indentures just aren't present in this episode. These people were, were sold into slavery. In 1661, an embarrassed restoration regime compensated the survivors of the abductions of 1656 with 50 acres of land each in newly conquered Jamaica and Antigua. And that's the episode. And this is the thing that keeps getting inflated. But that's what happened. It was an episode and we can't get out of this episode. But we should at least acknowledge that it had occurred. Meanwhile, Irish planters and their new English neighbours continue to thrive in the Caribbean. And there continue to be small numbers of Irish planters in all of the English colonies, concentrated in the Antilles, Montserrat, St. Kitts and Nevis. I hope you all study the map we had up at the beginning, but present on all the other islands as well. Irish planters made good masters of Irish labour. They could speak the same language after all. As these colonies transitioned from various forms of wretched unfree labour to plantations dependent entirely on enslaved Africans from about 1655 onward, these Irish planters were equal participants in the emerging slave economy. These Irish planters were horrible people and no more or less abominable than the English planters they coexisted with. And we can't really have this myth that the Irish are there being good guys in the colonies and the English are the ones who are being nasty when they're all pretty much the same. The slave-owning Irish are well-documented and not only in Caribbean records, in 1712, slaves in Antigua were being traded in Galway, property being enrolled, to be enrolled in patents in the grandest and most official possible way. Beginning in 1671, the Royal Africa Company with Charles II as its titular head industrialized the English slave trade, freezing out the Irish merchants who tried to form their own little clandestine network. The restoration land settlement in Ireland was central to this endeavor, and fully one third of the original shareholders in the Royal Africa Company acquired cheap Irish land that was resold or mortgaged to help finance the slave trade. Irish taxes were also farmed to the directors of the Royal Africa Company, and this money was stolen to fit out ships and purchase shackles. The Irish Exchequer was bankrupt by 1673, but even then the story of Ireland and the Caribbean does not become entirely a tale of colonial ex expropriation. It looks like there's kind of four points to a triangular trade here. They extract assets from Ireland, they use those to buy slaves, and they then complete the triangular trade with agriculture. So Daniel O'Neill, the groom of the England of the King's Bedchamber, was made a shareholder in the Royal Africa Company, finally realizing the ambition of Shane, his forebear, a player in the Caribbean standing beside a king. So that's just the brief run through of the 40 years. So if I could hand back to Mike. Thank you, David. Just one question has come in that might uh, spark us off uh, from Matthew Gunn. Also, was Sorry, that's the wrong question. Uh, is the argument that Irish slavery, which I understand was time limited in nature, uh, established a template for African slavery? No, African slavery had been, well, African slavery had been going for since the Portuguese and Spanish started it. It's not an English invention. So it's a, it's a, uh, a narrative corrective, should we say? Yeah, the, the, Again, like I said, within a year of England establishing their first colony in St. Kitts, they had brought over slaves from Africa, or English merchants of English extraction from Ireland. But the practice of using slaves in the Caribbean and in Central and Southern America was very well established. 
long predates of okay, Thank you, David. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, next up is Professor Brendan Kane. So, Brendan, do you want to take it away? Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, David. Uh, I actually came at this more from the people and indigenous perspective, um, you know, or, or that kind of question. So uh, I made some slides because I thought people wouldn't mind looking at some pictures as opposed to looking at me. So we'll go ahead and take a look at those. So in my 10 minutes, here are some talking points. So I've just called this Ireland of the Early Modern Caribbean. I am an early, early modernist, so that's what I focused on. And the question mark is mine, not the organizers, because it's sort of unclear to me uh, how I would actually approach this relationship, um, thinking about specifically indigenous histories and thinking about uh, decolonization and how that might be done. So in my remaining time, <clears throat> I thought I'd offer just a couple quick discussion points. And as I said, I'm really interested in this question of decolonizing Caribbean and Irish histories. And I thought that I would suggest two ways in which we might think about how we do that. Um, and the, I mean, there are a variety of ways, but it seems to me that one of the really critical kind of foundational moves that one needs to make is to actually decouple the histories from the larger imperial dynamics of the histories of these two places and the, and the peoples who are resident on them are not purely defined by imperial sources. And so I thought I would come at that from two uh, different ways. One is to look differently at the, or sort of distinctions in the gaze from the center onto these different areas of the Atlantic and the people resident within them. And so that's the gaze from the center, then also the gaze from the periphery. And specifically, uh, I'm interested in Irish language views of the Caribbean, but also the dynamics that brought those two, brought the Caribbean and, the, and Ireland into contact. And so specifically, I want to think about sort of race and racialization, because I do think that, that is one of the um, one of the issues that really sort of intrigues us, whether, you know, whether we're working on this professionally or we're just sort of, you know, interested in this. Um, it's, uh, it's really a kind of critical question in our historical moment. Uh, so I wanted to think about that from the perspective of representations in language in English. But then if we've sort of decoupled uh, or sort of attempted to decouple the histories of, um, in, of indigenous people in the Caribbean and indigenous people in Ireland, uh, what does the Irish view look like? So uh, I thought to get at that, I just take two shots, one to think about transportation and transplantation in the Caribbean is sort of place and dynamic. And then to think a little bit about commodities and culture, uh, specifically looking at tobacco and uh, sugar. And, and then hopefully to sort of circle back for a, as a kind of segue into Finola's presentation and to our broader conversation about if what I've suggested about attempts to decolonize uh, these histories, if they make any sense, how might they affect our kind of larger intellectual conversations? Um, in the broader historiography. So let me start out then with uh, representations and language. And the basic point here is I wanna say that there is a quite clear distinction uh, in the English sources between Gaelic Irish and uh, Caribs residents of the Caribbean indigenous people across the Atlantic. And I wanna make the case in, in two ways. And I mean, I think most of us may know this, and so apologies if this is kind of remedial, but I think it is important because it, it can become quite easy to sort of collapse 
those on the bad end of empire into kind of singular categories. So there are very few pictorial representations of the Irish from the early modern period uh, from the English perspective, well, really from any perspective, I suppose. And here's one, um, and actually let me make this a little bit um, better. I mean, obviously a sort of very crude uh, doodle. This I've just copied out of the calendar of state papers. Um, and this is a, a Terlachlan of O'Neill. Um, we have the very famous Rory O'Moore, obviously sort of very stylized and, you know, with the kind of political doggerel poem down beneath setting uh, O'Moore and his contention with the crown within a political context of um, contention between the crown and Irish elites. The slightly more ethnographically dis you know, distinctive or you know, creating uh, distinctions that we find on speed, right? So here we have you know, Irish elites all the way down to the mere Irish. And of course, this is one of many maps um, that uh, you know, of European peoples. So it's not just simply the Irish, famously Durr and the Irish soldiers, which is kind of stylized. But immediately when we move to images of uh, peoples in the new, in the quote unquote new world, uh, we get a very different, uh, more scientific gaze. Um, you know, here we have, you know, and this is a, this is a European gaze, obviously, uh, but we have this very close um, uh, sort of anatomically specific scientific view of bodies, both from the front and the back, um, with the sort of accoutrements of culture set against the context of their particular societies. Um, there's also text that goes with, with this that explains um, the cultures of these people. And, but if there's a more scientific um, uh, understanding of, of, of bodies across the Atlantic, and there, there, there is also then on the other hand, this kind of discourse of the fantastic, right? And thinking about the kinds of creatures or people who might populate the Caribbean and here we have this uh, suggestion of people with no heads. Um, and so what I wanna say is that, you know, when we think about mapping, we need to also think about the mapping of the body and the, the, the way in which that kind of technology or set of technologies is deployed to make sense of the encounter in the new world is something which is vastly, vastly different than what we have in terms of the English, um, sort of gaze upon the more proximate other uh, amongst the Irish. And so first point of distinction. To that second point of distinction, I, I don't have any slide for this, but uh, you know, this is something I've argued before, you know, which is um, not only are images important, but so is language and the linguistic choices that people make when describing the people whom they encounter are, are quite telling. And in reading English sources about the Irish, one often comes across barbarous or savage. So the Irish are barbarous of custom or savage of practice. And it's always in that adjectival sort of use. As soon as those writings start to take into account, uh, peoples who are encountered in the new world becomes the now, right? So we are encountering savages, we're encountering um, barbarians. So I think there's a, there's a distinct difference. 
So if there is a distinct difference, um, you know, from the imperial gaze, uh, what might be the perspective of indigenous peoples on um, on other side of the Atlantic and the Caribbean and Ireland? I happen to work in Ireland, um, so I, I know a little bit of something about that. I'm not sure what I could say about um, the Caribbean or sort of Carib perspective, uh, not the not the least of which um, in terms of sort of reasons is because um, there just simply wasn't the population. So, so for example, Barbados uh, is depopulated by the time um, English and Irish show, show up. Um, but there's a very strong discourse and very rich and interesting discourse about the Caribbean and its dynamics from the Irish language perspective. And I've just shown a kind of very famous example uh, from Turfin Heron. And the reason why I showed the manuscript is one, just to simply show the manuscript. And you can see if you follow the pointer here, transport and transplant in Jamaica. Um, but the reason I chose this um, is because it actually comes from a 19th century text, right? And this is a commonplace book that was written in the 19th century. And the point is, is simply that the experience of the Caribbean and trans transportation and sort of those not only the dynamics, but the specific places, you know, have a have a sort of powerful legacy within um, Irish cultural memory. Um, and so we can run through some of the Irish language sources and we can see the ways in which that memory is built and the way in which there's commentary on the transatlantic transplantation. And this is just an ex interesting example of a different word that's used here is convey. And so we can see, you know, Irish are uh, conveyed uh, to Jamaica. This is an Amanaduna, which is uh, found in uh, 5th, 17th century political poems. Um, but the one thing that I want to say about this is that I think in historiography, often we, we see transplant and transport as being seen within this kind of Cromwellian and sort of transatlantic perspective. But it is a dynamic which is also seen in a broader uh, broader context of movement and also of political tension. So this is a nice example from Thierbid McKeon Vui McCarthig, transplant, transport in Jamaica. Here we see that connection to the Atlantic, but also to France and to Spain. And so if there's a broader um, sort of geographic context in which we have to understand the dynamics of transplantation and transportation, there's also a deeper chronological context as well. And so here again, I'm sort of stealing these from these 17th century political poems and this from Manshigi Ravalnik, um, thinking about transplantation in the early part of the 17th century, not connected to Cromwell or to the Atlantic at all, um, but actually thinking about transplantation sort of, you know, within Ireland. But again, this is something which is framed by um, uh, sort of an earlier dynamic and a non sort of Atlantic one. So, um, and I just want to, you know, and here I, I actually just got tired of typing and I just sort of figured I'd give you the picture um, of, the that sort of broader poem that gives that broader context for transplantation. So here, if you just sort of follow the the cursor here, we see trans transplantation to Spain, then to the Caribbean, this Stacy, which is you know Stacia, so Stacia, um, but then within Ireland, self Kugi conduct and and Tuwin, right? So Thomond. Um, so anyway. 
thinking about the, the sort of Irish mentality, thinking about uh, the Caribbean and those dynamics of uh, transplantation, we need to set those geographically and chronologically, chronologically in broader context. And just to sort of finish up really quickly, um, I also think there's an interesting sort of cultural history or sort of cultural life of um, overseas commodities to be written. And we've seen great work on this by uh, people like Susan Flavin and others. Um, but I thought one of the nice things that one could do in looking at the Irish language material is sort of look at this, this kind of intertextual uh, sort of discourse around some of these commodities and a sort of like nice tension or um, that one can see is in the earlier part of the century, tobacco appears as what I've called here an uncivil luxury. And this is just taken from Parliament of Clan Thomas in which um, this, the smoking of tobacco is something that upstarts do as a way to try to sort of, you know, rise above their station. We also see this in the famous poem by Brian McGillifalrig, um, people smoking tobacco. But when we get then to the middle of the 17th century, we see tobacco production as something which is a sort of dynamic of uh, imperial impression, right? So we have people who are being sort of packed in ships and sent over uh, to, uh, to make, to make, you know, to harvest tobacco um, uh, packed like cattle. So, and finally, just as last thing, sort of thinking about race, thinking about color, thinking about, I, you know, there is, there is an interesting um, thinking also even about slavery. There's a, there's a biblical context of this too. And this is this great line uh, from Eamon Adona, thinking about the religious context of transnational difference, putting the Turks, the Jews, um, and, and uh, the Moors, Black Moors, um, within a um, religious context. So. All right, and um, Shukra had a little thing here, and I don't really think that that shows up in the Irish language material as something which is exotic. Um, it is sometimes sort of set within a broader uh, transnational perspective here. You know, Shukra uh, is sort of like Spanish wine, uh, but that seems to be sort of um, slightly more domesticated. And finally, all right, where would we go from here if any of the things I said about sort of decoupling these histories and thinking about decolonizing from these different perspectives, what kind of effects they would have. Um, and I'm really interested in um, the way in which the hub affects the lab, whether, you know, as David says, it allows a kind of status elevation um, and we can talk about in the panel, but I'm also really unclear what indigenous history from the Caribbean and just keeping in mind the sort of Irish language element. All right, so I'll leave it there, thanks. Thank you very much, Brendan. Uh, just again, one quick question while we've got you. Um, from uh, James Livesey, Brendan, do you have any idea on the, of the dissemination of uh, Vesalius in Ireland and a New World in any relation to practices of dissection as well as representation? Uh, the short answer to that, James, would be no. Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, the, there might be people here, like when we used to sort of open it up, that would know quite a bit more about this. Um, but sort of Irish language medical texts, you know, I'm thinking about people like John Cunningham, who might, you know, I don't know if John's here, who might know more about this, um, or maybe Eamon. But, I mean, what the sort of anatomical understanding amongst sort of the Irish language um, uh, sort of in intellectual class is, uh, that I'm not sure. Um, so, sorry, okay. but we, we, can, we can open that up. We can come back to it later. Thanks very much, Brendan. Okay, Fernando Kane, would you like to take your place and share your screen? You're muted. You're... 
Right, so can everyone hear me now? Yeah, you're perfect. Um, well, I mainly um, think about Ireland and the Caribbean in terms of plantations and the plantation um, complex um, and how it descended from European villa complexes and then was mutated or altered as it moved into different environments. Um, part of the reason I'm also interested in the Caribbean is, is the way Irish people behaved when they got there and their remarkably kind of fluid identities and mutable quality um, between empires and how they were able to negotiate themselves into the different empires and then adopted various languages. Now, the language I'm most interested in is, um, is design language and how, how it's translated from Ireland to the Caribbean and then also comes back again. Um, and the other um, topic that I find very helpful in talking about or thinking about plantations in the Caribbean is, is absenteeism um, and whether people are present or not, whether they live in their environment or whether they're in a way off-site and how that affects um, how they think about a place and then also how they design the place, whether they're positioned in um, Nantes or Sandemang, um, and how that affects um, the actual structure of the plantation and how it's imprinted um, into the landscape itself. Um, I also want to talk a little bit um, today, because um, I've been doing some comparative analysis of the two richest um, Caribbean islands, um, which were both founded very much on the plantation complex and on developing sugar and on making the maximum amount of profit from sugar um, and the land on which sugar was grown. Um, and then the different ways in which the French and the British empires kind of approach the design of their two islands. I find that um, quite fascinating. It is of course implicit, particularly in the drawings and the maps of these islands because we have quite different kind of property structures and that's imprinted into the land very quickly. So this is um, uh, actually a 19th century map of a British plantation. Um, and these are the types because um, essentially colonial governance differs between the two, two islands. Um, Saint-Domingue is essentially run out of Paris um, and all documents are in Paris and it's very centralized and Les Ingenieurs du Bois essentially plan the island um, from Paris and it's sent out from there. So you get, get a very um, paper project quality to it, which contrasts very much with Jamaica um, where the island plantocracy um, had some form of representation in government and also as a result, um, the archives are in Jamaica and the National Library of Jamaica has an extraordinary collection of maps. But for the same reason, they're much more kind of haphazard um, the great tradition of European cadastral mapping, where the state essentially um, um, forces people to draw and record the boundaries and size and position and relative position of their property to other properties is absent from the British tradition. Um, so this is a Jamaican map um, where you can just see just how sketchy it is. And here we have an Irish person, Billy Latouche. Um, and Belfield, which is a plantation I've been writing about recently there. Um, and these kind of um, diagrams to Belfield works, which are very important for understanding the sugar um, economy because of the split between pens and works and, and how essentially different parts of the landscape were um, supporting other parts of the landscape, even though the primary sugar plantation um, was of course the primary concern, but at the same time, it couldn't really operate without all these secondary areas of land, including, of course, the enslaved workers and um, gardens 
and pieces of land they were given upland generally. But I want to move briefly to Sandemang because within the Anglophone world, um, we're really not very aware of the, of the richest um, and most successful island in the Caribbean, which was really doubling Jamaica's out, output by the end of the 18th century and was the jewel in the French crown, even though its scale is, is relatively tiny compared to Canada. And um, I find it very interesting that, that the economics of the 18th century are so different from today, that, that it's Saint-Domingue, is this, this part of Haiti, and it's only this bit over here that's actually creating the great sugar lords in Nantes and Saint-Malo and Bordeaux. Um, and so this is a, a map of Saint-Domingue, but briefly, this is the French tradition of cadastral mapping, um, which the French have recently digitized um, and which is really extraordinary in terms of the documentation for each individual plantation and their relation to each other and their scalar relation to each other. And what, what is evident from an kind of early scan of all these maps is that the plantation sizes are quite similar and also the organizational um, layout of a French plantation, that the slave housing, unlike the Jamaican plantation or, or also the, the American plantation, where the slave housing will take frequently um, some kind of a much more casual form, which is thought to be partly allowing them to, to continue their, their traditions of housing in, in Africa. The French are obviously controlling everything much more accurately at a, um, and, and, and have no truck with um, kind of uh, casual expressions of spatial control. Um, so this is the kind of map. Um, and then th these are the, so here, when we look at, this is a map of Northern um, Sandamag, and you can see here the imprint as is evident on the Jamaican maps, thanks to the Brown map and also the Craftsville maps, and where we can track the Irish across the landscape, essentially. Here we can see Walsh and Butler and O'Gorman and Stapleton and all those great Franco-Irish names coming into the um, Sandemang um, landscape. And this is Haiti of today um, at an early date. But what's also evident in these maps is a degree of French engineering. And um, these were flat landscapes. They were very highly engineered. They were they put in um, very careful calculations for dikes and sluice gates so that they could engineer the landscape um, to and make the maximum profit from the sugar plantation. And the French state is funding and involved with these kind of um, large landscape projects at a very early date. So you get a very different landscape. And um, here's another great map of around Lake High where we can also see the Irish Heroes O'Shiel. Um, and this up here are the great and famous Laborde plantations, the, the sequence of Laborde plantations, um, which others have written about. Um, and then over here we have the Walshes, and we also have um, Torbeck was also a kind of Irish stronghold here. And then when we go into the details of the map, so here I'm picking out the Butler plantations um, and the Walsh plantations. These families were, were of course, all intermarried. Um, so also the engineering and the landscape tend to follow strangely fluid patterns of kind of family connection of family identity. And again, the French are drawing this very carefully. They're um, very concerned frequently that the, the water would, because water has to work like that, the water has to connect to other patterns of water. People upstream have to collaborate with people downstream or the whole system will go wrong. And um, so these are being very carefully recorded and legally recorded also and to send back to Paris. And here we have the Butler plantations here um, with, uh, where, um, and where they developed the very large sugar plantations. And what's interesting also is um, thanks to, I can't obviously go to Haiti 
um, currently to research this, but this photo, even though it's very poor, and I'm very um, thankful to Ralph de Butler and also Philippe Bethoulet who are allowing me to show this photograph. Um, but here, these are this is the Butler plantation, and um, where you can see the scale of the underwater water holdings, and um, where he's driving, um, where he has planned, and it's recorded in that wonderful book, the Morro de Saint Mary, which has never been fully translated into English, um, and which um, records in detail the extraordinary engineering achievement of many of these Franco-Irish um, plantations at this period. Um, so to conclude. Um, those are the, from a comparative point of view, and I think um, comparing the Irish are uniquely positioned to work in this kind of comparative frame because they're in the different empires. Um, and also that, that kind of chauvinism, which certainly comes into design history where you're trying to um, position the style of an English plantation versus the French plant, plantation, that's obviously more muted um, in, in Irish identities. But, why examine essentially the Irish-owned plantations of other European empires? Ireland is not an imperial nation. It does not have to answer for the state compensation schemes. It has no sordid Congo histories, no complicit royal families, and no Windrush Pied-Noir generations to apologize to. Um, there is no need to frame, um, arguably, imperial history for our school children. Um, but however, Ireland did benefit from imperial practices of other empires and plantation design may have partly originated in Ireland. Um, now, one might argue that the Franco-Irish families also of Nantes, Bordeaux and La Rochelle, descendants of the wild geese, have been resident in France for long enough to have lost their Irish identities, together with any spatial or cultural legacies that it might have left them. Yet their patterns of intermarriage, their unapologetic embrace of mercantile activity, which is unusual in aristocrats, but a consequence arguably of emigration. Their rapid rapprochement with empire in the aftermath of the French and Haitian revolutions and their strange propensity to retire to the Caribbean, um, which again contradicts um, most practices in other empires and, and positions the Irish, um, the, the, particularly the French Irish with this kind of double, double emigration, first to France and then to the Caribbean. And then in the aftermath of revolution, we prefer to stay in the Caribbean. Um, makes the Franco-Irish planters of Saint-Domingue and other French Caribbean islands among the more complex to analyze. Um, so I've really used this opportunity to really drag attention away actually from the British Empire and from Jamaica and from those sources um, that are in the English language and which are much um, easier obviously for us to read. Um, and to, to suggest that the Irish in the Caribbean is a much more multilingual um, multidisciplinary um, kind of endeavor and that, that we, can, we can make a contribution, I think, to the understanding of colonial space and to, to, to the very abstract kind of conceptions of how you make an empire and how Europeans manage to have such an extraordinary and arguably negative impact on many of these environments um, is, is arguably well told to the Irish story because partly it is so complex that it involves so many, ident so many shifting identities and also manipulations of other empires to achieve um, what the Irish wanted, which was fundamentally greater wealth. Um, so that's, that's 10 minutes, I, I hope, approximately. Um, so I will leave it at that. Perfect timing, thank you. Um, just one question, Eleanor, about the maps uh, that's come in. Mm -hmm. Fabulous maps, thanks, but could you clarify the point 
about uh, cadastral mapping not being part of the British tradition. Where do um, Petty and the Down survey fit in with the broader European tradition? Well, it, I think it's really just the boundaries. Um, I have it here, the, no the lack of um, similar legal obligations to register properties in the British Isles, unless a financial transfer obligation, such as a property sale or mortgage, obliged a deed to be registered. And so large ancestral aristocratic estates in Ireland, um, for example, where the, and the down survey is exceptional to this, but if you're actually studying uh, an Irish estate um, where the property had been received directly from the crown, they were not required in a similar way to French or Italian or Spanish people to actually register um, accurately the size, exact location and boundaries of their property or the details of the buildings and essentially essentially to assess it for tax purposes in a consistent way so um i mean there's there's various i'm not an expert in this in any way and there's various references um that i have used which are very which are very helpful in terms of why we don't why we do, why there isn't a cadastral mapping system in the british system and what and does it matter because comparative actually estate um, people who study um, estate agency are particularly interested in the absence of information to do with property in the British Isles that they would expect to have in France and Spain. So and, and these kind of maps, I think, I, I think when you see the consistency with which um, an entire area is mapped in Saint-Domingue, for example, and a whole series of maps produced of an area is wonderful for landscape history because, because you can compare estates without having to uh, build in Jamaica as, as you have to build each estate separately from a whole sequence of maps. And it's very hard to do comparative analysis easily because you have maybe seven maps of this estate, seven maps, and, and then you have to kind of align the scales and compare them. While the French have these wonderful cadastral maps where all the, all the estates are depicted on the same map at the same time, at the same scale. And so you can also um, understand the, the big engineering schemes, which is where French power is really being kind of pushed into Saint-Domingue to make it, and, and money to, to make it the richest colony of the Caribbean. Um, and just to, just to appreciate, I suppose, that the economic dominance of Saint-Domingue, which is so hard to imagine today. And I mean, this last image um, it is Google Maps of um, part of the northern side of Saint-Domingue, um, which essentially has not changed very much since the 18th century and where the, the geometry, the physical features, the roads, all the infrastructure is still um, essentially there. But of course, it's, it's not conserved or in any way um, analyzed to the same extent. So I'm encouraging people to look at other, other islands as well. Okay, brilliant, thank you. So to bring us to the end of the papers, uh, Jonathan Wright, um, if you want to take over the screen, you close your screen for now. Let's go there. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. No, you're good. You're good. Um, so Jonathan, take it away. Okay. Uh, thanks, Mike. Um, so I want to take a, I guess, a slightly different approach um, this evening, uh, just for a few minutes. Uh, at the start, Mike uh, mentioned back in 2019, I published a book called uh, An Ulster Slave Owner in the Revolutionary Atlantic. The Life and Letters of John Black. Uh, and one of the questions that, that we've received um, actually in advance of this session sort of regarded um, historiography um, and um, 
kind of the, the recent interest in Irish connections with the Caribbean? Where does this sort of um, uh, come from? Where does this interest come from? Um, how has it uh, developed? Where do we think it comes from? What I thought I would do tonight is to just talk a bit about the book, um, um, how I arrived at this project working in this man called John Black um, and what I was trying to, to, to achieve with the project. Very, very quickly, who is John Black? Uh, John Black is a member of a, a relatively well-known Ulster merchant clan, um, a family that was well-established in the um, Atlantic world by the middle of the 18th century, albeit one that was orientated more towards um, the eastern side of the Atlantic, um, uh, particularly connections between Bordeaux um, and Ireland. They had outposts as well in, in, in the Isle of Man. Um, the John Black that I'm working, uh, or that I've worked on, I should say, one of oh, about seven or eight John Blacks that appear in the family tree over a 50-year period, um, uh, is, is a relatively little-known member of the family who winds up uh, in the Caribbean in the 1770s, thinks of himself as a sojourner uh, and never comes home. Um, and what I, what I did in the book was I, I published um, uh, an edited series of 20 letters that he wrote uh, with, a, with a, an introduction contextualizing them. Relatively short series of letters, 20 letters, uh, although are very detailed letters, um, and they span the period from 1799 uh, up to 1836, although most of them uh, date from the opening three or four years uh, of the 19th century. So how did I come to this project? Um, uh, and what was I, what was I trying to, to um, achieve with it? So I started off as a historian of uh, Belfast in the early 19th century, particularly interested in um, changing political culture following on from the 1798 rebellion. Uh, and in that guise as a PhD student, um, I encountered the Caribbean uh, insofar as uh, one of the kind of key families in my doctoral research, the tenants, two members of the tenant family spent time uh, in the Caribbean, one of them uh, as a plantation manager in Jamaica. At that point, though, that really wasn't where the story was for me. What I was interested in doing in that project was exploring the way in which Belfast um, fitted in with um, broader British political culture in the early 19th century. It wasn't until after I finished that project that I really started to think seriously about empire. Um, and I did that um, because I was thinking uh, about the career of a man called James Emerson Tennant, Belfast politician, friend of Charles Dickens, um, but also a colonial administrator in the 1840s. And I was kind of interested in exploring his career um, and particularly the way in which during his career, he, in a sense, disseminated empire. And um, he did that through his writings, but also through collecting goods, which later found their way into what we know of today as the Ulster Museum. Um, and in exploring his career, I started engaging with the work of the, the new imperial historians, thinking particularly of Catherine Hall, Sonia Rose, the idea of empire at home. And as I thought about that, I suddenly realized that the earlier work I had done on Belfast was a massive missed opportunity because empire was everywhere in the late 18th and 19th century in Belfast. Uh, you couldn't have walked down a street in Belfast without encountering somebody uh, who had connections, particularly with, with the Caribbean. Um, and I started to think about the ways in which this historiography, the new British imperial history could be applied to the earlier period and became particularly interested as well in questions of, of slavery uh, and anti-slavery. How I came to John Black though was really um, through serendipity. I was looking for Ulstermen in one imperial space and found them in another. A friend and colleague had requested that I do some research in Prony looking for Ulstermen in Nova Scotia. 
Um, and while I was looking for Ulcerman, Nova Scotia, I came across the correspondence of John Black, a Trinidadian planter whose health was ruined and who traveled to Nova Scotia for a period of time to try and recover his constitution. And I sat in Prony reading these letters. Uh, and this was a couple of months after I had read um, James Epstein's excellent book on Trinidad and the, uh, the, the Picton controversy. And as I read John Black's letters, I realized I, I know these names. John Black is writing about going to a ball in Governor Picton's house. I know who Picton is. Picton is a, a really nasty piece of work. Who is this guy? And I started to get very interested then um, in, in, in John Black. I transcribed the letters um, and sat on them for a while and wondered what I was going to do with them until it was suggested to me, well, why don't you publish them? Which is ultimately what I did. Um, now, the colleague who suggested um, that I publish the letters will remain nameless tonight. Uh, not least because at various points during the project, I found myself cursing him because John Black is a really nasty individual. Um, and I spent um, a considerable amount of time kind of trying to get, you know, into his world, into his way of thinking, engaging, you know, very, very closely with what he had to say about his world. And I found that project working on the letters infuriating in another way, satisfying. It was infuriating because John Black is a self-centered myopic, self-pitying author and that was lives at his disposal, who didn't really seem to care about that, um, who was only interested in, in his own straitened financial circumstances, who dehumanised enslaved people. Dealing with that stuff is incredibly frustrating. But it was also satisfying because there is a sense in which Black had managed to hide in plain sight. Um, if you look at the urban histories of Belfast, you get references to West Indian property owners. You get references to merchants. These people are not identified for what they are, which is slave owners. And that's what Black was. Um, and what Black does in his letters um, is he writes quite openly about slavery, but he nevertheless elides the realities of what slavery was like uh, in, 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 in Trinidad. And there was a certain satisfaction to be derived, I think, from making Black visible. And what I was really trying to do here was echoing kind of work that Catherine Hall, um, Nicholas Draper, Keith McClellan did with the legacies of British slave ownership. Um, they have, have spoken about how what they were trying to do was to write the slave owners back into the British narrative to make them visible. Okay? If you go and you look at the original Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, what you see is slave owners being described as merchants, as property owners, as landowners, not as slave owners. And they were trying to make slave owners visible with the legacies of, of British slave ownership project. And that's very much what I was trying to do um, with, with, with Black, um, Black as well. And I, I think that's important because although we have the groundbreaking work of, of Nini Rogers with her Ireland slavery and anti-slavery, um, and I think all of us who work in this field are indebted to Nini's work. Um, although we have that, the figure of the Irish slave owner remains still very, very shadowy. And that has repercussions for debates about Ireland and the Caribbean, about Ireland and slavery. If you type Ireland slavery into Google, what you will get is returns about the whole Irish slaves controversy, um, which um, to a certain extent, I think there's a lot of wasted energy involved in this. We're debating this one thing and we're, we're looking away from the very real involvement that Irish people had in the exploitation of other people in, in the Caribbean. Uh, and that's what I wanted to focus on. So I published these letters. What do these letters then um, reveal? Um, well, one reviewer has pointed out that actually they reveal a very, very normal Caribbean slave owner. 
okay? Um, and that's true up to a point. And I could sort of actually back to the point. What I wanted to do was to put flesh on this kind of skeletal understanding we have of the, 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 the Irish slave owner. And here is just a very normal, typical slave owner, okay? Who, you know, uh, dehumanizes the enslaved people um, whose, whose, whose labor he, he profits from um, and who, who is only concerned with his own financial bottom line. Um, but what I would also say is that in point of fact, John Black was not a typical slave owner. And he's only a typical slave owner if you view the Caribbean as a whole. And viewing the Caribbean as a whole is a problem because the Caribbean is not one place. Um, it is a collection of places which differ chronologically from time. So the, the, the Caribbean, as, as David and Brendan were talking about it, when we think of the Caribbean, typically what we think of is the Caribbean, um, um, the kind of established, developed sugar monoculture, plantation culture. Okay, that's what we think of. David and, and Brendan were actually talking about the Caribbean as it was developing into that, essentially, in, in, in their presentations. So over time, the Caribbean changes significantly, but also at the same time, it changes significantly depending on where you look. And where you're looking with John Black is Trinidad, uh, Trinidad in the late 18th century. Um, Black first goes out to Grenada in the 1770s. He stays there for a couple of years before hopping to Trinidad. Um, and he appears to do that because he's in financial difficulties. Um, and in Trinidad, you encounter a very, very different place to say Jamaica, okay? Uh, because Trinidad in the late 18th century is pretty much what Jamaica is like in the second half of the 17th century. That is to say, it is an island on which sugar monoculture is being forced, but it hasn't been fully developed at that point in time. So it's a frontier, essentially, in which large numbers of enslaved people uh, are, are, are being worked to death simply to get the plantations established. Now, in that, um, that, that particular context, John Black is one of the biggest single slave owners on the island. At its height, his plantation has just over 200 uh, enslaved people on it. If you go to Jamaica at the same time, that's nothing. That's a mid-ranking plantation. That means John Black is not a significant figure at all. In Trinidad, he is, in point of fact, a very, very significant figure. Um, and, and one of the points that I would make is that whenever we think about the Caribbean, um, we have to be aware of those differences that exist within the region, from island to island. Trinidad is also different um, because of uh, the fact that up until 1797, it's been a Spanish island. Um, and it, it, it's here that I suppose my work connects with some of the things that, that Manula was talking about, thinking about how the Irish within the context of the Caribbean move across and between um, different imperial spaces. So with John Black, you have an Ulster Protestant, an Ulster Scot, um, essentially, albeit an Ulster Scot, who is Episcopalian rather than Presbyterian, which is what you would assume, um, who goes out to Grenada, which had been a French colony, but had been ceded to Britain following Seven Years' War, although it's later invaded by the French again during the time of John Black's there, who then moves from that British colony to a Spanish colony, Trinidad, which becomes a British colony during his lifetime in 1797, albeit a British colony on which Spanish law continues to apply. 
So right there, you've got the fluidity of the Atlantic world, and you've got the Irishman moving across and between these, these, different, um, these different imperial spaces. Um, and so really what I'm interested in is thinking about that specificity, thinking about the Irish moving about, moving across and between these, these spaces, but also thinking on, on a human level um, about how this all works, essentially. And that's where the letters essentially come into play. So we've known for a long time that Ireland has had economic connections with the Caribbean. Think of the work um, of, of Norman Gamble, of, of Tom Truxes, again, of Nini Rogers. Um, we, we know that this trade exists, these trading connections exist, but how do they work on a human level? One of the things that comes out of John Black's um, letters is the, the density of the connections binding Trinidad which is really on the periphery of the Atlantic, uh, sorry, of, 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 of the Caribbean at the time he's there with Ireland. Um, and, and again and again, as you read his letters, you get um, numerous examples of Ulstermen appearing in Trinidad, moving through Trinidad that he's making contact with. Uh, and this raises questions. I mean, part of this, I think, is to do with the very particular historical moment. This is the, 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 the period of the Napoleonic Wars. So you've got large numbers of military men moving through. Um, and also the, the kind of the networks that you're seeing in his letters are Ulster networks. I think there are questions to answer about, um, do you see the same density of connection at other historical moments? Um, and I mean, are there, are there Munster networks? Are there Leinster networks? Uh, are there Connacht networks to be, to be uncovered um, uh, as well? So these people moving across the Atlantic, moving through these spaces, that's one way in which um, Ireland is connected to the Caribbean. The other way, of course, um, is, is, is through the letters themselves, okay? Um, that is how Black makes his Atlantic world work, through his epistolary practices, through essentially reminding his family of his existence uh, in the letters that he is writing. Um, and, and I suppose the, the final area that I've been really interested in is thinking about the significance of these familial letters. Because Black is writing to his family at the time that abolition is re-emerging in Britain, and he's writing against abolition. And we know that Black is not the only planter, he's not the only Irish sojourner in the Caribbean uh, who is writing back to his family, flatly contradicting the arguments of William Wilberforce and the abolitionists. And this is a really important way, I think, in which the Caribbean is encountered at home in Ireland. And we need to think about how I think these letters um, and these individuals present um, in, in, in the Caribbean who are maintaining these connections um, set up essentially counter narratives um, to, um, to, 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 to abolition, which is what, particularly in the context of Belfast, which is what we always hear about when we hear about Belfast and slavery, people want to talk about opposition to slavery. What people don't want to talk about is the fact that there were large numbers of people in Belfast in the late 18th and early 19th century who were directly or indirectly connected to and profiting from uh, the Caribbean. And there was within Belfast a pro-slavery grouping essentially. Um, and, and you get glimpses of that emerging in these letters that Black writes to his family. Letters in which he writes really openly about his plantation, about his enslaved workforce. Letters in which, for instance, he asks his brother, you know, can you help me to source cheap food stuff that I can use to feed my enslaved workforce. Um, he's not expecting any censure at all 
in these letters. He's very confident writing these letters that he's writing to someone who will accept his worldview. And so we get a really interesting glimpse from these letters, uh, really, I suppose, of the dynamics of connection binding um, one particular part of Ireland, Belfast, with the Caribbean uh, in, 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 in the age of revolution. And it's really these dynamics of, of, of connection, how on a human level all of this works um, that, that, that I've been interested in um, with, with my work. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave things there. Um, I'm happy to Thanks, Jonathan. Just one, one question. Somebody was asking about um, Lord Sligo Westport, sorry, Lord Sligo Westport House owning mm. substantial sugar plantations in the Caribbean. They think it's Trinidad. And they asked a question about, is it the sugar being repatriated? Is it the profits? And I suppose that question kind of, when you think about somewhere relatively small and you make the point about the sort of large Ulster networks that Black's dealing with. I mean, just, and you talk, you also mentioned the whole idea of, you know, the, the pro-slavery, pro-plantation mentality within Ulster at the time. Um, the people are working in this trade, they're profiting from this trade. At what point, from to somewhere like Belfast, Ulster, at what point and how is that flow of, of profit back to Ulster, Belfast manifesting itself? I mean, Panola uh, talked about the kind of the absentee landlord as well as the present landlord. Black's obviously a present landlord, but I mean, other people are, are working it a different way. Well, so the, the, the problem here, I guess, I guess um, is that the, the planter that I worked on wasn't a particularly successful one. So, <laughs> He didn't make those profits to send back, essentially. So I, I can't answer that question from from the perspective of of, of John Black. Um, I mean, there, there are a number of levels to this, essentially. Um, and thinking thinking about the flows of money that are involved here, I think we have to recognise that nobody really in the 18th century who's involved in the Atlantic trades can get away from the fact that they are involved in an economic system which has at its heart the existence of slavery. So even if you're sending foodstuffs out, you know, you're profiting from the fact that those foodstuffs might be being used to you know, feed enslaved workers or, 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 or whatever. Um, so, so the entire economy revolves around the existence of this. Tracing individual profits, um, I, I think, is slightly more problematical. The one way that, that, that or one easier way of doing it, of course, um, is looking at the flows of the compensation money. And again, off the legacies of British slave ownership project and looking at, at, at who was granted compensation when, when slavery was finally abolished um, in 1833. And there are a number of very clear examples of very, very um, uh, large influxes of capital into Ulster and, and into Ireland um, off the back of the, the, the compensation that was dispersed in 1833. Um, okay, just Obviously, the four of you, thank you very much. That's absolutely fascinating to see the different ways you approach the different points. I thought the point that Jonathan made there is to sort of really encapsulate this idea of different chronologies, different geographic spaces, different levels of, um, of, 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 the, of this process, that the Caribbean isn't simply just one place or if you look at the Irish and the Caribbean, was really instructive. Is there any points you'd make to each other about what, what each of you said? Is there something that springs to mind that we, you're seeing differences, comparisons? I mean, going back to some of um, <clears throat> Brendan's point where he tried to kind of encapsulate uh, a debate in a way, and that idea that of, 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 you know, transport, transplant, the commodification couple. I mean, is, 
Brendan, did you have any kind of reflections on what Fanulu was saying about this kind of distinction between the French and the British attitude, but also this idea that there are kind of Irish or Irish identities families moving between these different places, between these different so-called national cultures? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that actually really stood out for me um, in Fiona's presentation was talking about this double migration and the way in which that actually makes it quite problematic to sort of think about an, an Irish perspective on the Caribbean specifically, but also uh, Ireland within not only the British Empire, but it's this sort of like, um, you know, I mean, it's such a kind of hot spot of the sort of uh, interactions of different uh, different empires. So, I mean, you know, at a certain point, I mean, I think the kind of national framing of it um, is, I mean, it obviously makes sense, but it's, it's quite problematic. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, for no, that particular element of uh, your presentation, Nula, made me sort of think about was, I think something that also came up in Jonathan and David's, which is really thinking about when we sort of break down, and I think, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, the sort of distinctions between, say, New English who might appear Irish, you know, within a kind of Caribbean um, or a sort of transatlantic um, setting, Old English, right, Gaelic Irish. Uh, it, it, those are important to think about, but I think sort of thinking about kind of thinking about the class distinctions, right? Sort of like class before class uh, and the way in which those who may be Irish who benefit and those who are, um, you know, are on the sort of bad end, right? Of, of forced labor uh, may have very little sort of, you know, sense of, you know, their own kind of shared, um, national identity or shared purpose. So I guess, you know, I, I, I was really wondering about these kinds of status distinctions, you know, amongst the Irish and across the periods that we're talking about. And so maybe a way to sort of segue that into um, some of the work that David and Jonathan were talking about is the way in which people sort of, you know, manage. And I was sort of, sort of interested in this, so the way in which the wealth that's generated in the Caribbean is then sort of pulled back into a, a kind of Irish or sort of later kind of British setting in which people can then sort of re-maneuver re themselves in terms of uh, their position within society and politics. And I'm wondering if there are kind of different dynamics along those lines in the 17th century than say, you know, Jonathan with the 18th or 19th century. So two thoughts. I think the class part of it is probably what we haven't examined because the slavery issue tends to dominate the historiography of the of the region. Most of these plantations are farms. And as Jonathan pointed out, a lot of them aren't terribly successful farms. And the farms that use slavery to go about their business. The money is made by the slave traders, by the sugar traders, by the middlemen by the wholesalers of sugar in Amsterdam and these kinds of places. Most of the plantation owners are low to middle class farmers, not terribly different other than their methods from their counterparts in Somerset or Avignon or Mayo or anywhere else. So there is a big class distinction here that I think we're missing. There's a, there's a hierarchy, there's the, governing, there's the governing class, there's a merchant class that's doing very well out of all this. There's all these middling farmers and then all these laborers in wretched conditions underneath them. And I think because I, I the think, yeah. 
Sorry? I think it does change though. And I think the magnate, the sugar magnates and, and the consolidation of the farms into essentially great estates is, is a, you know, it, you can observe that on particular islands, certainly by the 18th century, not in the 17th century. But are, but are they great but estates? Yeah, there are great profits being made. The, the estate houses in, I don't know, Jamaica, it's not Chatsworth. No, it's big, not just, and that's, that's, what's, that's what's interesting because because how do you who you have to impress changes with different islands as well and you know just by being having a two-story house might be very impressive in Jamaica while it's obviously not going to be impressive at home so um I think I think the 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 vocabulary that people use varies from island to island depending on how rich the island is essentially but also the degree to which you have to either become Creole, depending on, you know, the, the culture of the island, um, and then also the degree to which you have to um, also sell yourself to people back home. I think all those images we have of Jamaica, for example, at the end of the 18th century, which are um, aping Chatsworth, if you like, um, were necessary also to kind of justify a, a, a kind of, they were trying to present themselves as a civilized island, so they created civilized images of it. Um, so I think it does, and also all those images lie, I think, and, and um, some people are trying very hard to represent themselves as farmers, when, when in reality they're a lot closer to aristocrats, because for one reason or another they don't want the true extent of their income to actually be known. And I think, just to return to the other question about the income streams and how we can follow them, again a lot of those have been destroyed or manipulated since that time. So, for example, just to return to the Westport or the Sligo manuscripts, we actually know the extent of the income they were deriving from Jamaica because of the dowry negotiations that were conducted. And um, I think it was for the third Earl where, where they essentially had to come clean to the father of the bride to be um, as to how much money they were actually you know, extracting out of Jamaica. And that was coming clean. It wasn't rental income. It was pure cash. Um, and so there were no encumbrances or various other things upon it. And, and so the agent was very interested in that. But, but most families since that time have done their level best to erase all that financial history. Um, and that's why I think it's, it's very difficult um, to track the, the full wealth, if you like. The, the, the families that are most likely to have a full account, if you like, are the royal families and the very rich families. But again, it's not in anyone's interest to be very um, uh, honest about their past financial history. But was it, but even in the cases where you have the amount, is it a decent amount? Is it a Dennis O'Brien type of amount or is it a you know, respectable return for a large farm amount? Well, I it is a very, I mean, if you look at the at the importance the state attach, attaches to Sandemang and work back from that either to Sandemang or to Jamaica and what's going to happen if we don't have those income streams. then if you work from the top down, I think it's quite clear that the, the financial impact of the sugar islands was very great in 18th century London or 18th century Paris. I'm not so sure about the 17th century now at all. Yeah, I mean, just to come in on that, absolutely. By the time you get to the 18th century in Jamaica, there are the, the plantocracy essentially, um, the, 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 the wealthiest planters are, are are making fabulous amounts of money. I mean, absolutely 
fabulous amounts of money, but they are few and far between. And mm. the thing about 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 these these islands and, and and how they work is that there is the opportunity to win and win big, but not everybody does. That's 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 the point. Um, and the risks that are involved in trying to win big are, are massive. Whether that is losing an entire year's crop in hurricane season, whether that is shipping your crop out too late and it's lost, whether that is shipping your crop out at a time when the sugar market is glutted and you get a lower price. Um, you know, it, it, it's a very, very risky business, which means that those, those, those kind of class distinctions absolutely exist. There are very, very wealthy planters who do very, very well out of it, um, but there are lots of planters who don't do very well out of it at all. And below the rank of the planters themselves, there are the overseers. So these are the, the, the poor Europeans, if you like, who go out in search of employment. I mean, one example would be um, Robert Tennant, Belfast, guy who ends his life as, as one of the town's, if you like, leading liberal voices, guy who's an abolitionist, um, but who much earlier in his life, in the 1780s, um, decided he was going to become a surgeon. Um, and uh, apprenticed as a surgeon uh, and then travelled out to Jamaica because he was told there were opportunities in Jamaica for surgeons. There were no opportunities in Jamaica for surgeons. The whole business was tied up. So what do you do if you've travelled out to Jamaica and you can't do the work that you think you're going to do? You have to get employment somewhere. He ends up managing sugar plantations. Doesn't come home a wealthy man. Doesn't come home with any riches, essentially. Um, he, he's just a man who has a job there, essentially. So there are absolutely those distinctions. But I think the point about the wealthiest planters, of course, um, why are they not building Chatsworth in Jamaica? Well, why would you build Chatsworth in Jamaica when you can come home to England and build it, right? Um, you build your big house in England, and most of these planters, even the ones like John Black, who never come back to Europe, spend their entire lives looking back cringingly at Europe, wishing they could be back there, and um, trying to explain away the cultural differences that exist um, between the islands that they're on and what they know to be home. So, for example, whenever John Black sends one of his daughters home to Belfast to live with her uncle and be educated, he writes to his brother to say, she's a fine girl for a Creole. That is to say, she's very different to your daughters, but please don't judge her against them. Judge her by my standards. All right. She's been brought up in this wild place. So um, there's a kind of a very common theme, particularly among British, and I think you probably need to know a little bit more about how Irish sojourners and planters in the West Indies thought about this. But certainly for, for English planters, there's, there's a very common kind of theme that, that home is England, home is not the West Indies. That you make money there, you might become acclimatised to it there, but ultimately home is, is, is back in England. And if you're going to build that big house and compete against those other big houses, you're going to want to do that in England. You're not going to do that in, 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 in Jamaica. Okay, I'm going to move on. I'm just aware we've got 10 minutes left, so I'm going to throw out some questions for you and try and answer them quickly. Um, one of them, I think, builds on this idea of who, who these people are. I mean, the issue of class was just mentioned. Somebody said, we're looking at entrepreneurs, planters, traders, and the like. Were these guys, men, often the younger sons of landholders who could not see a life for themselves at home in the army in a church. So in a way, who are these people? For my period, they wanted to make money. So you they're, they're entrepreneurs. They're, yeah, you send out the fittest. You needed capital, you needed contacts. So it wasn't as if you, there was an existing ferry and you could just go. You had to arrange the trip, finance the trip, get the patent for the land off whoever had it and make a go of it. It was 
a heavily capital-intensive thing to do. So it would have been coming from the merchant elite and not necessarily the youngest boy. But at a later period, I think things change when things are much more open and there's more trade happening in land. But early period, it's building plantations. It's not easy. Okay. Uh, a question for Fanola. Um, had there been any work undertaken on the environmental effects in terms of land use, ecosystems, etc., of these Franco-Irish engineered plantation landscapes? Not specifically the Irish ones. I mean, some ecological um, historians, I suppose, have looked at that. There's a green imperialism. There's a very good book on on the ecological impact of imperialism. You know, the, the, of, of course, we know that the, the ground was progressively leached generally, um, that fertilizer, you know, was uh, that things weren't properly rotated. I mean, these, these were observed at the time, and so, so it did change also farming practice over time. Um, but I suppose the original arrival of the of Europeans and its impact on the environment has been um, analysed by hmm. many. Okay. Um, another one for you. Thank you for the fascinating papers. I'm working on the Irish in Cuba through the Spanish language, but finding plenty of uh, inter-imperial links through family connections on other Caribbean islands. I wonder if any of the speakers come across a family of Burks originating in Limerick, in San Domingue, or Jamaica. There, there are Burks on the Jamaican maps, um, if that's helpful at all. I haven't done research into them, but they are there. But you are clearly, I mean, it's, it's, it's a genuine point that we, you know, if, if we could map at that kind of French scale of, of plots, mm. if we could do that, obviously we can't, but you would really start building up this kind of, inter-island, inter-empire, an Irish presence working throughout. Would that be your... Yeah, I think there's a, there's a book that's been recently published by Govan Bailey, who, do, who does say that, you know, I think the extent of Irish immigration or emigration during the period compared to other um, states is, is large. So, you know, French texts say that Irish Catholic emigres were amongst the foremost merchants um, in Saint-Domingue. And they also say, you know, that a, a typical French Antillean town before 1660s was composed principally of Catholic Irish Dutch Calvinists from Europe and those free, fleeing Brazil and Portuguese Jews. So in, in the French sources, it's, it, it's very emphatic that, that you'd actually expect to find more Irish than French in many French towns in Antilles. So, so it's, it's also trying to assess, I think, that the, the extent of that emigration um, and its impact on societies which are really very small in number, particularly in the 17th century. But if you were in there at the beginning, just like with a plantation landscape, you know that you you change the geometry. Um, if you if you're if you can change it at the beginning, then its its impact is is very long. Um, so, so these islands were profoundly affected by, by Irish people um, and they set the geometry and they set the pattern of development far, far greater than their number almost, the impact. Um, two things. One, sorry, David, but uh, my recollection is uh, like in your book, there's some, there's some work on Burks who make, make money in the Caribbean and sort of come back. So um 
you know, I'm not sure if it's the same family, but I think one of the things that interesting about that, it demonstrates the way, um, I mean, going with what David had said before, there seems to be greater opportunity for people sort of across the social hierarchy to sort of take part in this as time goes on, but it's uh, quite labor intensive. So it's the kinds of families that you imagine would be able to sort of pull this off. Um, you know, in the, in the 17th century. But I just wanted to sort of quickly add something, uh, throw in here that I think we also have, I mean, we've touched on, but, uh, you know, Fanola's uh, response there made me think of is, is religion. And, you know, obviously this is, you know, part of, uh, is one of the sort of spurring dynamics for um, say the stuff that David and I are studying in the 17th century. Um, and then also just for is sort of creating some of the sort of productive, you know, at times productive attention within the Caribbean as we think about sort of inter-imperial um, competition. But one of the things, you know, that I recall from reading, you know, Jenny Shaw's uh, work on on the Irish and the Caribbean is, you know, by the end of the 17th century, something of a sort of a kind of practical uh, religious tolerance occurs. And, uh, you know, in part, I mean, that's that's driven by the dyna dynamics of the sort of the economy, but it's also driven by the presence of a real other, a racialized other um, through African slavery. And whereas at precisely the same time, simultaneously the end of the 17th century, early 18th century in Ireland, um, you know, that distinction that I was talking about before between sort of, you know, savage and civil has, I mean, that's no longer the axis of difference, right? It's now, um, it's now a matter of religion or it's sectarian. And so you have penal laws in Ireland and you have this, this sort of practical tolerance, um, you know, in, in a setting that's much more driven by economic concerns uh, in the Caribbean. So I think it's really interesting sort of flipping of um, these, kind of modes of, of sort of differentiation. So um, religion might be something we may, we may want to think about uh, further down the line too. Just to, again, I'm, not, I'm, more, I'm sorry, Jonathan. No, I was just gonna say this, this, I mean, this applies in Trinidad as well because Trinidad is uh, a Spanish colony in the 18th century. Um, it's, it's opened up to other settlers in the 1780s. Um, and the understanding when it's opened up is that it's opened up to other Catholic settlers. John Black, when he goes in, in 1780s, has absolutely no business being in Trinidad because he's a Protestant. Um, uh, one of two things happens. Either the assumption is made that because he's Irish, he's Catholic, or the then Spanish governor of the island sort of looks the other way and lets him in because, you know, but, but there is that fluidity that's there, absolutely. And he has a really interesting bit in, in, in one of his letters where he writes to his brother, um, about attending um, the Catholic Church with his wife, um, and he says, you know, basically, I, you know, I'm sending my daughter back to, you know, um, I don't really care about her religion as long as she has one. She can go to church with you. I've been in the habit of going to the Catholic Church with with with, with my wife, but I don't really care. He says. So this is again an Ulster Protestant who sort of embraces this kind of quite cheerful Caribbean ecumenism while, while, while he's there, you know. Um, and there's a sense that, 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 yeah, some of the things that might be important in Ireland are perhaps less important when, when you're in the context of the Caribbean. And there is that, that, that fluidity there around, around questions of religion. Hey, one last question for you, um, which I think sums up many things. Um, how important was political capital in the development of Irish plantations in the Caribbean? particularly those owned by Catholics, and also the indirect impact of the penal laws? Nothing like a small question to end on. 
Well, I can only look at the, again, the early period where mm -hmm. the Irish got on perfectly well with their English neighbours essentially until 1641. Once word of the 1641 rebellion got down to the islands, the Irish were treated with suspicion and a few of them left and went to Spanish islands. After that, Cromwell comes in and then there's a serious segregation, which only comes back on the restoration. When they begin to drift back and they get some of their lands and things back with James and then it goes again with the penal laws. So it mirrors what's happening in Ireland to a great degree, the property rights of the Irish on the islands and the willingness of the Irish to participate in the colonial project. They're better off going to Maryland. There's plenty of choice here. So as the colonies develop into a wider sphere, you find that they're interested in trying to hang on to a probably valuable Barbados 50 acres when they could take 500 acres on a Spanish island, or they could take 5,000 acres in, in somewhere in North America. So opportunities, people move around the place, but generally speaking to me, the property rights seem to very much mirror what's happening in the home country. I do think that the Irish ability though, to bend the law and to manipulate and to work around discovery and to work around, around all those property constraints within the penal laws served people very well when they went to the Caribbean because again you could you could manipulate things you could shape shift you could you know um and and that ability is um probably was probably very valuable I think that you that you could see the gaps in the law and um you know manipulate them as you saw fit that's a, that's a little scary that seems to I mean I'm, I'm sure that's true uh, but it seems in a way that um, that potentially sort of um, gives some credence to claims amongst uh, Tudor observers or early Stuart observers of the uh, of the duplicity of the Irish and their kind of sneakiness. So um, anyway, no, I take the point, but you know what I mean? It's like you can see some of you know, English planters saying like, yep, told you, Spencer told us. <laughs> Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, guys. Um, I think that was a great session, um, brilliant discussion. And as I said at the beginning, I think it's, it, this is a starting point. It's a discussion in a whole different set of ways to tease out a variety of issues here um, with you know, as it were, Irish historians, non-Irish historians, etc., and really kind of build something um, and look at different perspectives as we move forward. So thank you to the panel. Thank you to David, to Brendan, to Panula, and to Jonathan. Uh, in the background, you can't see them, but I have to thank them because they do all the work. It's Quiver and Kieran and the rest of the committee. Uh, my final thing before we say goodnight is to wish you um, a reminder, which is for the Tuesday, the 9th of February, which is our next meeting. And the speaker is Dr. Juliana Edelman from Dublin City University, who's going to be talking about the work from her recent book on animals in the city, 19th century Dublin. So for now, speakers, people, I hope you all took something away from it. Thank you very much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years. <laughs>